Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Seeking Truth and our study of Romans 15. The theme tonight is Hear Me Clearly. I am a Christian. Now, this, my friends, is the year of St. Joseph. It started December 8th on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, and it'll go till December 8th next year. But I also want to draw your attention to this Saturday, January 23rd. This Saturday would have been the Feast of the Espousal of Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Joseph. And I want to show you some beautiful paintings of this because it's something we don't often think of. The Espousal of Mary and Joseph or the Marriage of Virgin Mary and Joseph. This feast day was formally observed in the church on January 23rd. The Sacred Congregation of Rites removed the feast in 1961, and I wish they wouldn't have because we need a feast like this today. It was removed in It was taken off particular calendars. Numerous particular feasts were removed, and this was one of them, the Feast of the Espousal of Mary and Joseph. It can only happen in a place where there's a special connection to this feast. And for example, in 1989, the Oblates of St. Joseph, a priestly order, obtained permission to still celebrate this feast, January 23rd, the Holy Spouses of Mary and Joseph, with the liturgical ranking of a feast day, because it's important to their order, the Oblates of St. Joseph, the full proper text for the preface of their Mass says this, You give the Church the joy of celebrating the Feast of the Holy Spouses, Mary and Joseph. In her, full of grace and worthy mother of your Son, you signify the beginning of the Church, resplendently beautiful bride of Christ. You chose him, the wise and faithful servant, as husband of the Virgin Mother of God, and made him head of your family, to guard as a father your only Son, conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So look at these beautiful pictures of the espousal of Mary and Joseph. When I've traveled through other countries, I often see these and always take a picture because I don't see a lot of them in the United States. The espousal of Mary and Joseph. When they first were espoused, Before they were married, Joseph would go make an insula, and when the father said it was okay to go marry, only the father knew the day or hour where the husband would go get the bride. So another thing I want to tell you about is that our Pope, Francis, has a great love of the Holy Family, and we know that right off the bat with his coat of arms. This shield is his coat of arms. It's a bright blue background, and at the center top, look where my red arrow is, the Christogram. It represents Jesus. It's the Jesuit logo of which he is a member. And the IHS monogram is there with the cross that pierces through the H, and then you see the three black nails, the nails of Christ directly underneath. And under that, you see on the left, the star representing Mary, the star of evangelization, the star, the mother of Christ, and the mother of the church. And then on the right side, you see the spikenard, the flower uh, representing Saint Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus and the patron of the Universal Catholic Church. And these symbols to Francis, he chose these because it demonstrates his love for Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, the Holy Family. And I also love his papal motto to point that out in Latin, miserando. I don't know how to speak Latin, but what it means in English is by having mercy. 
by choosing him. And it's taken from the Venerable St. Bede in his sermon on the call of St. Matthew. And it says, Jesus saw the tax collector and having mercy chose him as an apostle saying to him, follow me. And so it was on that feast, the feast day of St. Matthew the Apostle in 1953, that a young 17-year-old Jorge Bagorlio was touched by the mercy of God's grace and felt the call to religious life in the footsteps of St. Ignatius of Loyola and joined the Society of Jesus. And so that's his coat of arms. But something else Pope Francis loves, other than the Holy Family, is this Sunday, January 24th, 2021, will be the Sunday of the Word of God. Now, it's only the third time we've celebrated it. Pope Francis, it's a new feast day in the church. It'll be on the third Sunday in ordinary time every year, and it will be devoted to the celebration and the study and the dissemination of the Word of God, which is what we're all about here at Seeking Truth. So I love this new feast day and wanted you to perk up this Sunday when you go to Mass and celebrate this special Sunday of the Word of God. It was an apostolic letter that Francis wrote telling us about it. He gave the letter at the Basilica of St. John Lateran on September 30th of 219 on the feast day of none other than St. Jerome, the great scripture scholar and translator, because it was his 16th anniversary of his death. And so this will be the third time we celebrate it. The motto of the feast day is he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's from the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, Sunday of the word of God. And they even had a logo icon written for this special feast day that says Sunday of the Word of God. And it was painted by the late Benedictine sister Marie-Paul Farron. She's a member of Our Lady of Calvary congregation. She lives and works in a monastery on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, but she's recently passed away. She died before the actual first feast day. She was 89 years old. She died in Jerusalem, Israel, but she wrote this icon and I want to explain it to you. You see the arrow, follow the arrow. The resurrected Christ is holding in his left hand a scroll, which is the sacred scripture that found its fulfillment in his person, the Old Testament scroll. And then there are two disciples walking with him on the on the road to Emmaus, and it's Clopas and his wife Mary. We learn of their names in John 19. And both fix their gaze on Jesus Christ while Clopas holds a walking stick to indicate they are on a pilgrimage with Jesus. Mary's holding one hand upward, and with her other hand, she's touching the Lord, reaffirming that he has fulfilled the ancient promises and he is the living word that must be proclaimed to the entire world. Holding the stick in one hand, Clopas has a free hand that's pointing to the road ahead, which all disciples are called to take in order to bring the good news to everyone. And then there's a star overhead symbolizing the evangelization, the permanent light, the light that guides our journey and shows us the way the light of Christ. Now the feet of all three disciples are in motion. Look at their feet. They represent that the proclamation of the risen Christ cannot be accomplished by tired or lazy disciples. Those beautiful feet Paul tells us about in Romans that bring the good news. Not tired or lazy feet, but those who are dynamic and ready to find new ways to speak so that sacred scripture can come alive, be a living guide to the life of the people of the church. Most biblical scholars agree that St. Paul would have traveled over 10,000 miles, mainly by foot. And that would be equal to us walking from New York to Los Angeles nearly four times. So you got to have 
good feet, not lazy feet. So this Sunday, celebrate. When you go to Mass, celebrate the Word of God. Like it tells us in Acts 1, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, bringing that Word of God to wherever you are. That's what Paul wanted to do. It's what he wanted to do tonight in Romans 15. We see that he started that arrow number one in Damascus. Now we know he's in Corinth writing this letter, but he wants, they want him to come to Rome, but he wants to go all the way to arrow number three, to the far western edge of the known world, to the Roman Empire, to Hispania, to Spain. He wants to, as it says in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as Jesus Christ removed our iniquities from us, he wants to go from east to west, that command in Acts to go to all the earth. That is what Paul is intent on doing. We know he took a first missionary trip. We studied Acts of the Apostles. We saw that first missionary trip in Acts 13 and 14. In the years 46 to 48, he is first stop in Cyprus. He goes to Salamis in Cyprus, and, and he takes that word to the Jewish synagogues. He goes on a second missionary journey from 49 to 52 AD. We know he meets up with Silas. They go to Derby and Lystra and Phrygia and Galatia and Troas and Damascus. He intentionally avoids Asia because the Holy Spirit would not allow him to go there and preach. And you remember, there was a night when Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing right there pleading with him, come and to Macedonia and help us there. So Timothy, Paul, and Silas decided to leave for Macedonia at once, and they concluded that God was calling them to preach the good news there in Acts chapter 16. His third missionary journey, he visits Antioch. Again, he goes to Galatia and Phrygia, and in his third missionary journey, it lasts from 53 to 57 AD. He's in Corinth in 57, writing this letter to the Romans. This is found in Acts 18, through Acts 21. How about a fourth missionary journey? A lot of people think Paul went on a fourth missionary journey. What does it tell us tonight in Romans 15? It says, this is the reason, Romans, why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to speed on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem with aid for the saints. He's taken up a collection. The Christians in Jerusalem are hurting, and he has a collection of money for the saints. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem with aid for the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Now, we know that James, Cephas, and John were the reputed pillars of the early church, the way. And St. James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, he was one of those early pillars. Paul told us about all three of these in Galatians too. He's in jeopardy. The church in Jerusalem is under a lot of attack, a lot of heat. But even before James had had this pressure on him, Saul of Tarsus had presided over a stoning of the first Christian martyr, St. Stephen, in Acts 7. But then in Acts 9, Paul has this phenomenal metanoia, a total change, a total change of direction in his life. He leaves Jerusalem 
But James is killed and Peter is imprisoned in Acts chapter 12. Herod, the king, laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church in Acts 12. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and he saw it please the Jews. And so Herod Agrippa proceeded to also arrest Peter. So things are really heating up for the saints in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is getting dangerous. We have beheading of James. We have the imprisonment of Peter. And Paul is in Corinth writing to the Romans, and he says, at present, however, I I'm going to Jerusalem with aid for the saints. It's heated up even more since those early chapters of Acts, but Paul's going anyway. He has to bring a collection. He wants to help them. Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they are in debt to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also be able to be in service of them in material blessings. So Paul wants to take up a collection. He's been up in Macedonia where the where the dream, where he was told to go. He's been to Achaia. He brought them the good news, the gospel, the Gentiles. They would have never ever heard of it had he not traveled there. Rome has also received great spiritual blessings. They already knew the good news. Many of them were at the first Pentecost and went back to Rome. So do you know what this is? If we're reading between the lines, if we're reading between the lines in Romans 15, I would say Paul might be saying something here. For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor, and they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they're in debt because they are Gentiles. And if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessing of the Jews, they ought to be able to be of service to them in material blessings. Paul sounds, he's kind of putting that hint in the mind of the Romans that he will be coming to Rome soon and he will be taking up a collection. So pony up Rome, I'm coming, I'm coming. He knows he doesn't have to start a church there. There is a church, it's solid, it's blossoming, it's growing. There's some tensions there, some pastoral things he's addressing because he's an apostle, he's in leadership, but he will also know that they have material wealth in Rome and the, the Christians around the world are suffering, especially in Jerusalem. So I bet he's hinting that he will be back. He will come through. He's not going to stay long. It's kind of a diss. I won't be long, just long enough. I, I, I'd like to take up a collection. But we know this is necessary in ministry. Even today, we have our priests and bishops that have missions that they are in charge of in the church, and they have to take up collections to support and assist and aid their missions. And so we just had, every year we have the Archbishop's Annual Appeal, and every gift makes an impact, and it helps empower. This is what it says on their website, that the Archbishop's Annual Appeal helps us in our daily work of resourcing and empowering leaders in our churches and school to experience unity in Christ, to encounter Jesus, and to equip disciples and receive and live mercy. So this is what Paul's doing, and we're still doing it today. So Paul goes on in verse 28, when therefore I have completed this, and I have delivered to them what has been raised the money, the collection, I shall go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, Romans, I shall come in the fullness and the blessing of Christ. You yourselves know, this is now Acts 20, okay? So this is when Paul does journey to Jerusalem. It's in Acts 20. You yourselves know how I lived among you all the time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials, which befell me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house 
to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance of God and our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, bound in the spirit, not knowing what shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul's been told that in prayer. Paul's been told that from the Holy Spirit in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await him. And he's heading now, going to Jerusalem. He's got the collection from Macedonia and Acacia, and he's going. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. Yet he's going. After Paul entered Jerusalem, he was immediately met with opposition from the Jews. They incited a riot so violent and so chaotic that Paul was arrested and carried off by two soldiers for his own safety. Paul later discovered a plot against his life. He brought it to the Roman commander's attention. Paul was transferred then to Caesarea Maritima, where he was imprisoned for at least two years from 58 to 60 AD. Finally, Festus planned to transfer Paul back to Jerusalem to be put on trial there. But before this happened, Paul appealed to the emperor, to Caesar, to be transported by ship back to Rome. And it's in Acts 26 that, that it said, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Herod Agrippa said to Governor Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But he has appealed to Caesar and to Caesar he shall go. So now Paul's going to Rome. It was during this ship journey to Rome that Paul is shipwrecked near the island of Malta. So the Maltese, the, Mal the, the, the island of Malta is introduced to Jesus Christ. It's all in Acts 28. It's a wonderful read. But Paul experienced many difficulties from finally making it to Rome in 60 AD, where he was placed under house arrest for two years once he did get to Rome. Now, Paul may have been released after two years, like in 62 AD. He might have gone on this fourth missionary journey. Some scholars think he did. Or he may have been kept in prison until the time of the fire in Rome, which was 64 AD. There's nothing in the Bible, no biblical evidence that Paul left Rome after his first imprisonment and went west to Spain. But we do have other ancient texts that give a different impression. And one of those is the earliest references by Clement of Rome. He was a co-worker with Paul. He's mentioned by Paul in Philippians 4 verse 3, when Paul says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So Paul knows Clement for sure. They were fellow laborers working side by side to spread the gospel. And Clement is actually our first apostolic father, Clement of Rome. The second one here is Ignatius of Antioch, Syria. And the third one there is St. Polycarp of Smyrna from Western Turkey. And these apostolic fathers also wrote letters. And we have these letters, but they aren't in the New Testament. They come after that. But in Clement's letter, he writes, he writes this about Paul. Because of jealousy and strife, Paul, by his example, pointed out the way to the prize for patient endurance. After he had been seven times in chains and been driven into exile and had been stoned and had preached from east to west, he won the genuine glory for his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and having reached the farthest limits of the west, which we know would be Spain. The farthest limits of the west at that time was Hispania, Spain, on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. Clement goes on to say, finally, when he had given his testimony before the rulers, thus he departed from the world and went to the holy place, having become an outstanding example of patient endurance, Bishop Clement of Rome. Now, Clement was 
was Paul's co-worker. He was Bishop of Rome from 88 to 99 for 10 years, and he is one of our earliest apostolic fathers because we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church built on the witness of the first 12 apostles and then those apostles after, and his writing has survived. There's another document called the Muratorian Canon. Here's a fragment of it. This piece is kept in Milan, Italy. But less than 100 years after Clement, the Muratorian Canon was a listing of writings which were part of the, a New Testament canon at that time in Christian history. And it does, not anymore, but at that time they were part of the canon. And it mentions that Paul did go to Spain. Moreover, the Acts of all the Apostles were written in one book, Acts. For the most excellent Theophilus, Luke compiled the individual events that took place in his presence, as he plainly shows by omitting the martyrdom of Peter, as well as the departure of Paul from the city of Rome when he journeyed to Spain. So that makes it sound like Paul did make it to Spain. And Cyril of Jerusalem, an early church theologian in Jerusalem, also passes on that Paul went to Spain when he writes, Paul, who from Jerusalem and even unto Illyricum fully preached the gospel and instructed even imperial Rome and carried the earnestness of his preaching as far as Spain, undergoing conflicts innumerable and performing signs and wonders. John Chrysostom, the golden tongue, the Archbishop of Constantinople, says that for after he, after Paul, had been in Rome, he returned to Spain, but whether he came thence again into these parts, we know not. And St. Jerome, the biblical scholar who translated 39 books of the Old Testament and four Gospels of the New Testament from Hebrew to Greek into Latin, is credited as the author of the Roman Vulgate Catholic Bible. He says that St. Paul, having been in Spain, went from one one ocean to another. So that gives us pretty good evidence in the early church that many thought Paul did make it all the way to Spain, which was his original heart's desire. Now, Caesar Nero, we've heard about him. He's in Rome, ruling in Rome during Paul's last years of his life. Nero had a huge colossus of himself built, a 30 meter high, which would be 98 feet bronze statue of himself, Emperor Nero, right outside the Colosseum. There's our Statue of Liberty, is 111 feet. Nero was 103 feet right by the Colosseum. Later, Nero's successors modified it. They painted it gold and changed it into a statue of the sun god Sol because Nero was so unpopular. But Nero as emperor had everything he could possibly want, but he hated the congestion of Rome and he thought it looked like a pigsty. He envisioned Rome as Nero's golden city. And if only he could get rid of the squalid, crooked, cramped Rome. He wanted shiny buildings, straight thoroughfares and clean streets. And in 64 AD, it is said that Nero instructed his lackeys to burn Rome to the ground so he could start building the city over. He had no regard for the poor, for their livelihood or for the lives that would be lost in the fire. The fire started on July 19th of 64 AD in the wooden shops inhabited by cooks, astrologers, and prostitutes in the southeast angle of the Circus Maximus. And the Roman historian Tacitus, who was a young boy at the time, later wrote an account. These are his words. The conflagration and broke out and instantly became so fierce and so rapid from the wind that it seized the grasp of the entire length of the circus. The 
blaze in its fury, ran fast through the level portions of the city, then rising to the hills while it again devastated every place below them. It outstripped all preventative measure, so rapid was the mischief, and so completely at its mercy was the city. The narrow winding passages and irregular streets which characterized old Rome. Adding to its were were wailings of terror-stricken women, the feebleness of age, the helpless inexperience of childhood, the crowds who sought to save themselves or others, dragging out the infirm or waiting for them, and by their hurry in one case, by their delay in the other, aggraving the confusion. They found that even places which they had imagined to be remote were involved in the same calamity. No one dared to stop the mischief because of incessant menaces from a number of persons who forbade the extinguishing of the flames. Others openly hurled brands and kept shouting that there was one who had given them authority. A rumor had gone forth everywhere that at that very time, when the city was in flames, the Emperor Nero appeared on a private stage and sang the destruction of Troy, comparing present misfortunes with the calamities of antiquity. At last, after five days, an end was put to the conflagration. At the foot of the Equiline Hill, at the destruction of all buildings on a vast space, so the violence of the fire had met the clear ground and an open sky. But before people had laid aside their fears, the flames returned, and in no less fury, a second round of fires. The temples of the gods and the porticos, which were devoted to enjoyment, fell in a yet more widespread ruin. Now, Roman historian Tacitus concluded, and to this conflagration there attached the greater infamy because it broke out on the Aemilian property of Tigellinus, a co-conspirator with Nero in the burning of Rome. And it seemed that Nero was aiming at the glory of founding a new city and calling it by his name, Cassius Deo. Another historian, writing 100 years after the great fire that destroyed 10 of Rome's 14 districts, says this, while the whole people was in a state of excitement and many driven mad by the calamity were leaping into the blaze, Nero mounted upon the roof of the palace where most of the whole conflagration was commanding a sweeping glance, and he put on the professional harpist garb and sang the taking of Troy. Although, to common minds, it seemed to be the taking of Rome. That's Cassius Deo. And in the aftermath of the great fire, the Roman people suspected arson and they suspected their insane ruler, Emperor Nero. The palace servants spread the word, the emperor has fiddled while Rome burned. And the people, already willing to believe that he had started the fire, became riotous. They chanted, Nero incredierius, Nero incredierius, Nero the arsonist, Nero the arsonist. In order to stave off a public lynching, Nero immediately accused used a new sect called Christians for the burning of the city. He rounded up the Christians, he wrapped them in pitch, he dipped them in tar, he burned them as torches for his dinner parties. He sewed them in animal skins and threw them to the dogs at the circus near Vatican Hill. And by the time Paul returned back to Rome from his final missionary journey to Spain, Rome may have already been burned. The outcry among Romans was so great that after the fire, Nero deflected the blame to the Christians, which began the imperial persecution of Christians. His cruelty was so extreme that people began to have sympathy for Christians. The imperial persecution of Christians lasted at least until the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. Now, Nero, the people 
wondered, is he, even the Christians wondered, is he the Antichrist? And the Hebrew gematria, which was the number assigned, the numerical value that the Jews assigned to each alphabetical letter, it just so happened that Caesar Nero's gematria added up to be the value of his name, 666. As prominent men in the church in Rome, Paul as well as Peter, were caught up in the maelstrom that surrounded the fiery chaos. Peter was crucified upside down as he had requested, and Paul was beheaded a swift, quick death because he had Roman citizenship. Paul did not know all this yet would be happening when he came to Rome, when he's writing to the Romans right now in this letter from Corinth. That was part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.